Welcome to the February 17th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss diminished ovarian reserve in young women with sickle cell anemia. Learn more about genomic alterations in adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma and review a novel diagnostic and prognostic index for malignancies associated with hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Diminished Ovarian Reserve in Young Women with Sickle Cell Anemia by Lydia Packer from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and colleagues. Diminished ovarian reserve, or DOR, is often seen in women with cancer and is a risk factor for recurrent pregnancy loss, miscarriage, and infertility. Studies have shown that sickle cell disease can also have profound effects on the normal sexual development of females. In a landmark study from Jamaica, women with sickle cell anemia were found to have delayed sexual development, with menarche occurring more than two years later compared to controls. Additional studies reported that women with sickle cell disease have higher rates of DOR compared to age-matched controls. A study conducted in 10 21-year-old girls with sickle cell anemia found that DOR occurred only in hydroxyurea-treated subjects, while a different study reported DOR in 30% of young females previously treated with a stem cell transplant. Despite these initial reports, and the improved survival of women with sickle cell anemia due to the availability of disease-modifying therapies, the effects of the disease and its treatments on fertility remain poorly understood. Indeed, there is an unmet need to better understand the association between sickle cell disease and DOR. In this latest study, investigators aimed to assess ovarian reserve in women with sickle cell anemia under 31 years old. They sought to compare the findings from age-stratified subgroups and to test the hypothesis that DOR is associated with disease complications or hydroxyurea use. The single institution study, conducted between January 1, 2018 and March 31, 2021, assessed ovarian reserve in 26 young women with sickle cell anemia, aged between 19 and 30 years. Ovarian reserve was measured on cycle days 3 to 5 using serologic testing for antimullerian hormone and or ultrasound-guided antral follicle count. 26 subjects completed serologic testing and 19 completed antral follicle count assessments before the ultrasound visits were shut down due to COVID-19. Besides hydroxyurea, current treatments included chronic transfusions and supportive care. In the current study of 26 patients, the five women found to have DOR were currently taking hydroxyurea, while 10 of 21 without DOR were currently taking hydroxyurea. Notably, 19 of 21 without DOR had taken hydroxyurea at some point. In epidemiological terms, the number needed to harm was 3.0 or 4.8 considering current or any use of hydroxyurea respectively. Stated differently, approximately three to five women would need to be prescribed hydroxyurea for DOR to be found in one individual. 
Subjects with DOR had expected differences in antimullerian hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone levels compared to subjects without DOR. Interestingly, among those taking hydroxyurea, DOR was associated with higher MCV, but not with hydroxyurea duration or dose, absolute neutrophil count, or disease complications. The authors also found higher antimullerian hormone levels among 19 to 25-year-olds compared to 26 to 30-year-olds, which is in line with the expected age-associated decline. There were no significant differences in disease complications by DOR status. Taken together, these findings indicate that a relatively low proportion of patients with sickle cell anemia are at risk of developing DOR but the data point to an association with hydroxyurea use. In their accompanying commentary, Charles Quinn and Russell Ware from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center note that the study by Packer and collaborators is a meaningful addition to the limited body of published data on DOR in sickle cell disease. However, they also emphasize that the findings do not reveal what is the actual cause of DOR in women treated with hydroxyurea. Hydroxyurea has historically been prescribed to the most severely affected patients. Therefore, more severe underlying disease with vasoocclusive organ damage may be causing the harm as opposed to hydroxyurea itself. Quinn and Ware stress that the authors are not arguing to limit the use of hydroxyurea in sickle cell disease, as it is a transformative therapy that improves and prolongs life. Thus, it is a false choice between the preservation of fertility and use of hydroxyurea. Quinn and Ware believe that longitudinal follow-up studies of pediatric cohorts treated with hydroxyurea early in life are needed to further decipher the risk of DOR and to assess the actual risk of infertility. They encourage that the same range of fertility counseling and preservation strategies that are provided to cancer patients should also be offered to women with sickle cell disease who suffer from reproductive inequity and are often neglected and marginalized. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Whole Genome Landscape of Adult T-Cell Leukemia Lymphoma by Yasunore Kogure from the National Cancer Research Institute in Tokyo, Japan, and colleagues. Adult T-Cell Leukemia Lymphoma, or ATL, is a malignancy of CD4-positive T-cells caused by infection with human T-cell leukemia virus type 1, or HTLV1. A typical patient with ATL has a single malignant clone that carries one copy of HTLV1 integrated in the T-cell genome. HTLV1 infection rates are the highest in areas where the virus is endemic, such as southwestern Japan, the Caribbean Basin, South America, the Middle East, Australia, and Romania. ATL remains one of the most aggressive and most difficult-to-treat hematological malignancies with no substantial improvement in average life expectancy in the last 30 years. Studies to date have implicated mutations in genes governing T-cell function or proliferation in the pathogenesis of ATL, specifically the products of two genes, TAX and HBZ, that regulate the expression of numerous host genes as well as HTLV1 
have been shown to act as oncodrivers, with HBZ exhibiting a stronger association. The contributions of any other genomic variants and non-coding mutations to the pathogenesis of ATL remain poorly understood. In the current study, investigators performed high-depth, whole-genome sequencing analysis for 150 Japanese and North American ATL patients to further delineate the driver genomic alterations, including non-coding mutations and loss-of-function mutations. All patients had documented HTLV-1 infection and were subclassified into acute, lymphoma, chronic, and smoldering subtypes. DNA was extracted from tumor and buccal or saliva samples of patients and matched controls, respectively. Whole genome sequencing revealed 11 previously unidentified oncogenic drivers among 56 altered genes. 32 of those 56 genes were altered in more than 10% of ATL cases. The median number of altered driver genes per case was 9. Interestingly, in 53% of the cases, alterations were found in the genes encoding the transcriptional repressive complex CIC-ATXN1. CIC has both long and short isoforms, and 95% of the mutations affected the long-specific exon, or CICL. The long form was only recently discovered and not covered by prior whole exome capture studies. Knocking out the CIC long exon in mice led to a doubling of the number of CD4 positive, CD25 positive, CD127 negative, FOXP3 positive T cells in the circulation, consistent with a T regulatory subset, hinting to the functional importance of the CIC ATXN1 complex. In 13% of cases, the authors also found recurrent structural variations in REL, a member of the REL NF kappa B family of transcription factors involved in T and B cell function. These alterations increased REL expression and generated aberrant gain-of-function proteins, which act as oncogenic drivers in ATL, as has also been observed in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Alterations were also found in the regulatory elements of the non-coding genome. Particularly frequent were alterations in the enhancer of the immunoglobulin gene IgH and the three-prime untranslated region of NFKBIZ. Mutations in the binding sites for the HTLV1 protein HBZ that contains recognition sequences for transcription factors AP1 and ETS further confirmed the role of HBZ in ATL pathogenesis. The authors were also able to identify seven distinct mutational signatures, the most prominent of which was the aging-related signature. This finding is in line with the hypothesis that ATL develops from the accumulation of replicative mutations in the HTLV1-altered T-cell clones. Finally, investigators were able to classify all ATL cases into two molecular subgroups with distinct clinical and genetic characteristics based on the driver alteration profile. Leukemic cases characterized by alterations in T-cell receptor signaling molecules, such as PLCG1, were classified as group 1, whereas lymphoma cases, enriched with antigen recognition genes HLAA, HLAB, and CD58, 
were classified as Group 2. Taken together, these findings are expected to have a profound impact on the development of novel diagnostic and therapeutic strategies for ATL and provide significant insights into the pathobiology of the disease. In an accompanying commentary, Charles Bangham from Imperial College London in the United Kingdom notes that Kugure and colleagues have successfully identified new oncogenic drivers, non-coding and structural mutations, and a novel molecular signature in ATL that distinguishes the leukemic from lymphomatous forms. He further adds that study findings provide strong evidence of the importance of several key players in the pathogenesis of ATL, including the HTLV1 gene, HBZ, the T-cell immune response, and the age-associated accumulation of replicative mutations. The identification of novel altered gene clusters associated with leukemic and lymphomatous subtypes of ATL points to an intriguing difference in the dominant mechanisms of ATL pathogenesis, with potential implications in the management of respective subtypes. The final article in today's podcast is entitled An Improved Index for Diagnosis and Mortality Prediction in Malignancy-Associated Hemophagocytic Lymphohistiocytosis by Adi Zareff Lorenz from the Cincinnati Children's Medical Center, the Sackler School of Medicine in Tel Aviv, and Meir Medical Center in Kafar Saba in Israel, and international colleagues. Hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH, is a life-threatening inflammatory syndrome that affects approximately 1% of adults with a hematological malignancy and up to 2.8% of individuals with B and T-cell lymphomas. Most adults with HLH lack the genetic variants typically present in familial HLH, and approximately 50% have an underlying cancer. The diagnosis and management of HLH that occurs in the context of a hematological malignancy, or HMHLH, is largely based on clinical experience derived from treating patients with familial HLH. Currently, the diagnosis of HLH is based on the fulfillment of five or more HLH-2004 diagnostic criteria or the presence of a causative genetic mutation suspected based on family history. However, the diagnostic cutoff levels for laboratory markers of HLH have not been optimized or validated in HMHLH. In addition, the H-score, which was developed to help diagnose HLH in adults, has proven imperfect due to an underrepresentation of patients with hematological malignancies in the cohort used to derive it. Complicating things further, there is no consensus whether patients fulfilling HLH-2004 diagnostic criteria should be treated with tumor-directed therapy, HLH-directed therapy, or both. Therefore, in the current study, Investigators aimed to optimize and simplify HMHLH diagnosis based on HLH-2004 defining features. They used patient outcomes to validate the newly defined diagnostic and prognostic parameter, the Optimized HLH Inflammatory Index, or OHI. The authors conducted a multicenter retrospective study of 225 adult patients with hematological malignancies in which HMHLH was clinically suspected during routine surveillance that took place between January 2012 and March 2020, 
patients fulfilling at least five of eight HLH-2004 diagnostic criteria were categorized as having HMHLH, while those with fewer than five criteria were assigned to the hematological malignancy group. The two key serum markers included in HLH-2004, namely ferritin and soluble CD25, were determined in all study subjects, along with a range of laboratory parameters related to inflammation. The authors used classification and regression tree and receiver operating curve analyses to identify the most useful diagnostic and prognostic parameters upon which the OHI was derived. The diagnostic and prognostic prediction ability of OHI was assessed in a subgroup analysis of the underlying malignancies within the studied cohort. The authors found that combined elevation of soluble CD25 and ferritin was most complementary with the HLH-2004 defining features, with a sensitivity of 84% and specificity of 81%. They then defined the threshold values for ferritin and soluble CD25 as 1,000 nanograms per milliliter and 3,900 units per milliliter, respectively, and used them to derive the OHI. The OHI was highly predictive of mortality across a diverse range of hematological malignancies. In addition, it successfully identified a large group of patients with high mortality risk that would have been missed based on HLH-2004 diagnostic criteria, or the H-score. During routine surveillance of patients with newly diagnosed hematological malignancies and those with clinically suspected HLH, the OHI demonstrated both diagnostic and prognostic value. Namely, patients with lymphoid or myeloid neoplasms who were OHI negative at presentation had an excellent prognosis, while the prognosis of OHI positive patients was poor. The authors concluded that the OHI demonstrated utility in identifying patients with hematological malignancies and an inflammatory state that was associated with a high mortality risk which warrants further prospective validation. In an accompanying commentary, Paul LaRose from the Schwarzwald-Barr Klinikum in Willigen-Schwenningen, Germany, notes that the OHI index successfully discriminates paraneoplastic inflammation in hematologic malignancies from pathologic hyperinflammation, known as malignancy-associated HLH. Furthermore, the OHI is capable of objectively establishing HLH as dangerous hyperinflammation early in the workup of patients, which has the potential to significantly reduce the morbidity and mortality of patients due to late or failed diagnosis. However, La Rose cautions that the prerequisite for broad application of the OHI is the availability and timely laboratory turnaround time of soluble CD25 serum levels. He is optimistic that, in the future, OHI will increase the detection rate of hematological malignancies hiding behind HLH, and that the timely diagnosis of the underlying condition will allow early initiation of disease-specific treatment and prevention of excess deaths in patients heretofore classified as HLH of unknown trigger. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website, at cme.bloodjournal.org. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. 
Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.